Well, good, good morning and welcome. It's so good to see you. Oh, thank you. That was a lovely response. Welcome. Guess which bit of the Bible we're in. <laughs> we're back still in 1 Samuel. Hope you've managed to read some of it. Because we are in chapter 13. Yes? Yes, Pat. That's better. Now, don't forget just one thing. Some of you have been telling me some of your just one things, which have been really, really special. And I think it's extraordinary um, that God takes his word. As Sue and I were just praying, you can have read it thousands of times, and God will bring out something new again. So that's really good. So don't forget the just one thing. Okay, into chapter 13. Saul becomes king at the age of 30. Any of you got anyone in your family around the age of 30? Yeah? Great. I have my youngest son is 32. 32? Yes, 32. Isn't it terrible you forget the ages of your children after all? 32. And those of you who might know my son Andrew, the thought of him becoming king... Nah, it just wouldn't work. He's actually quite young to become king. But scripture tells us he's 30 years old. Now, bear in mind, unlike our Prince Charles, there was no concept of hereditary monarchy. Yeah? Because you can't have a hereditary monarchy if you've never had a king before. So there was no rule book, only what they observed going on around them. No protocol. Let me read something to you. This is in your notes, which you'll get later, so don't panic. First impressions can be deceiving, especially when the image created by a person's appearance is contradicted by his or her qualities and abilities. Saul presented the ideal visual image of a king but the tendencies of his character often went contrary to God's commands for a king. Saul was God's chosen leader, but this did not mean he was capable of being king on his own. During his reign, Saul had his greatest success when he obeyed God, but his greatest failures resulted from acting on his own. Saul had the raw materials to be a good leader, the appearance, courage, and action. And even his weaknesses could have been used by God if Saul had recognized them and left them in God's hands. His own choices cut him off from God and eventually alienated him from God's people. Commentary notes in the Life Application Bible, and I thought they were worth noting for you. He was, remember, God's chosen leader. So let's dive straight into chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. So how old is he when he finished? 72, okay. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel 
2,000 were with him at Michmash, it's a lovely name for you, isn't it? And in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Oh, it's a bit arrogant, isn't it? Saying to some of them, off you go, don't need you. Verse 3, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Let me read that. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. You got that? Okay, look. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Oh, uh, what's happening? Saul has won his first victory. We looked at that last session against the Ammonites, validating the people's choice of him as king. Remember, he was crowned by Samuel, public acclamation, and then he wins his first victory. So they all think he's king. But these opening verses where Saul chooses 3,000 men, he keeps two-thirds of them with him, gives 1,000 to Jonathan, and Jonathan attacks the Philistines, but Saul takes the credit. And he used that as a way of summoning everyone to come close. Even though he sent some away, he now says, I want more back. And we're going to notice this up and down bit a lot throughout Saul. Let me say at the beginning, most commentators would say that if Saul was alive today, he'd probably be receiving help for manic depression because it's so erratic. Sky high, good, absolute chronic low. I'll just put that in for now. So you may not be able to see, oh, actually, it's better on this screen. Yeah, I'm very indebted to a gentleman, let me give you his name, Galin, G-A-L-Y-N, Vimers, W-I-M-E-R-S, who has done some amazing work on this. I promise you I haven't pinched his stuff. But he has hand-drawn dozens of maps. And that, that's one of his hand drawings, which is so useful. Okay, so, Giba, there's this Philistine outpost, yes? where Jonathan has attacked with his thousand troops and, and had a really great success. Michmash is where Saul was. But now, watch. What's going to happen is, this is Philistia, remember, on the coast that we showed you last time? But Philistia and the Philistine army get really, really mad that Jonathan has done this. So they send over... 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and numerous Philistine soldiers. Jonathan had how many? 1,000. Now, this is a sudden reversal of what Saul expected. He thought, great, we've won one victory, let's press in. And they retaliate Oh, in a terrible way. Let's read on. Verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, 
east of Beth Aden. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, in pits, and even in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilgal. So there they go. They're dashing over the river, hoping that the river will be enough of a barrier. Saul, however, remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were, what? Quaking with fear. Let me give you a few starting points to ponder. How do you react when someone else gets the credit for something you have done and done well? Sorry, Steph, that was a little mumble. Come on. Very grumpy. How else would you react? Sorry? Have a strop. Oh, there's a lovely phrase. Strop, grumpy. Hard done by. You've put in all the work and somebody else gets a credit. Unfortunately, the somebody else who gets a credit is not only the king, but he's your dad. <sighs> How do you react to overwhelming odds against you? Do you run and jump in the nearest cistern? Whatever, you know, a large hole in the ground, really. I think many of us can get quite scared. It's not just something is against us, but it's overwhelmingly against us. So what happens? Samuel, remember, had told Saul, I'm coming. I will make a sacrifice before you go into battle, but you need to wait. Remember that from chapter 10? So Saul is now hiding with his troops, waiting. They are quaking with fear. He is the king. He's supposed to know what to do. Samuel had told him to wait for seven days. Samuel does not arrive. Verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. And Saul's men began to scatter. I think I would have scattered at that point, wouldn't you? Get out of the way, quick. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. The men are in great tension. He's in great tension. And he makes a sacrifice. Now, first to note, that is expressly forbidden. Not the sacrifice, but who's making it. Yeah? Ah, there is more angst done by good-intentioned people doing the wrong stuff. Yes? Or am I the only one who's ever suffered from that? He had good intentions, but he disobeyed. Not only the command of God in Deuteronomy, but Samuel's express command. Stay. True character is demonstrated when tested under pressure. Yeah? Anyone can have character if you suffer no pressure. Because when you're under pressure, is the egg going to crack? Well... 
we need to look very carefully at what happens next. 1 Samuel 13, 10 to 12. Look really closely. Just as he finished, who's that? Saul. He just finished doing the burnt offering. And guess who turns up? Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? said Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Oh my word, what is he doing? Look at the words I've highlighted on screen. Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come and that the Philistines were assembling, oh, I thought, now the Philistines will come down and get me. So I had not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You might just as well have said, I felt compelled to disobey. But what is he doing? Remember, he's previously taken credit for Jonathan's actions, but what's he doing now? Blaming everyone else. Everyone else. It's usually the sign that you've done it all along. If you've ever had young children, who did this? He did it. Yes? Blame somebody else as quickly as you can. What is Samuel's reaction? Verse 13. There's a little three-letter word you need to notice in this section. Listen carefully. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What's the three-letter word? You. Samuel, make sure that Saul is well aware this is your fault. I'm afraid as a king, he had to take responsibility. What he took was the credit for someone else's work and none of the responsibility. Not good in a leader. What is Saul left with? Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gabeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted, oh, there's always problems when a king counts. Saul counted the men who were with him, and they numbered about, how many did he start with? He had 2,000, Jonathan had the one, and he's now down to 600. Remember we read they were starting to scatter. So his power base is dramatically decreasing. Then we have another problem. Oh, yeah, there's Samuel's rebuke. And remember, he's repeating this phrase that God has sought out a man after his own heart. That has already come up in chapter 10. We've got it repeated again here. Now, I think it was Graham last week talked about technological advances or not. 
if I recall correctly. Now, look at this incredible comment in 19, verse 19 and 20 of chapter 13. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. Two verses, but doesn't it tell us so much? One, that the Israelites haven't really got any weapons at all. And two, they have no way of turning what they've got into weapons. But three, they are paying the enemy to sharpen their tools. Oh my goodness. You think, I, I, could, I couldn't possibly have read that right. Now, we're told in the next verse, actually, that only the royal family, i.e. only Saul and Jonathan, had weapons at all. Now, what's happening? I think God wants them to realize that they're only going to win battles with his help. And God wanted to give the nation victory without reliance on swords. So they recognized that God alone was their strength. Does that gel with you? What do we rely on to fight our battles? There's a lovely worship song. This is how I fight my battles. And it's praise and worship and thanking God for what he's done and what he's going to do. It is not necessarily with the weapons of this world. That's a whole other sermon, Pat. Okay. Let's move on. Chapter 14. We have this extraordinary account of young Jonathan. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Hang on a minute. Why not? Why do you think Jonathan didn't tell him? Yeah. His father could take the praise and the credit. Any other possibilities? He thought his father was wrong. <laughs> Dad might say you can't do that. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting one, Bob. If he was killed, there would be no heir to the throne. Now, we will find in the later part of this chapter, Jonathan did have brothers. But Jonathan was the firstborn and therefore the heir. So a valid point. I think it was also strategically significant that he decided to have a secret attack. Make as quiet an approach as possible and see what happens. Let's read it together. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gabir under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, you know that, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. That's a very roundabout way of telling you he was Eli's grandson and was acting in the role of a priest. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistines' outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. 
One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other to the south towards Giva. Okay, so he's in this ravine with two cliffs either side. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. That's an important statement from Jonathan. Who is Jonathan giving credit to? The Lord, yeah? He's not saying, I'm doing this despite Dad. Maybe God will give us the victory here. Okay. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Oh, isn't that a verse to hang on to? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I love the message in this. No one can stop God from saving when he sets his mind to it. Oh, isn't that a verse to hang on to? No one can stop God from saving when he sets his mind to it. Verse 7, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said, go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there till we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So he's effectively asking God for a yes or no. You need to remember this yes or no thing is really important in Scripture. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So that's a sign God says, go. So Jonathan says to his armor bearer, climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. That half an acre is not a massive amount of land, but he's managed to kill 20 of the enemy, just two of them, 10 men each. Sometimes God can use a small skirmish or a few steps taken in obedience to win a much larger victory than you expect. And never underestimate what God can achieve through the action of one. How many times have you said, God, I'm only one? What difference can I make? Jonathan made a massive difference. Now, we read a very, very interesting next section. Verse 15, panic struck the whole army. That's the Philistine army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. Whoa, that's some panic, isn't it? Well, this is why. It was a panic sent by God. Oh, my goodness. What if God makes you panic? Ooh, doesn't bear thinking about it, really. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. What? He's trying to figure out, has somebody left us to cause this commotion? When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, 
This is this priest with him. Bring the ark of God. Oh, do you remember when we were talking about the ark as a ping pong and a good luck charm? Saul's now trying to put a spiritual spin on his next actions. Bring the ark here, and that will somehow validate what I'm going to do next. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, that's not to say that the priest was about to physically attack, because he didn't have a weapon. It was something much more interesting. Now, maybe, maybe sometime we'll do some studies on the priesthood. Um, but those who acted as priests often had a breastplate on their front. Now, normally, it would have been with the high priest. But this seems to suggest that he may have had some kind of breastplate on his front. And behind that breastplate, which in the high priest would have had all those precious jewels on them, was a very thin pocket. Yes? It was sewn up across the bottom and across the top, but not at the sides. Why? So that if the priest was asked a yes or no question, God would have the opportunity to say yes or no. But how do you know which is yes and which is no? Well, what they did, they had two small stones, one of which was white and one of which was black. You may have heard them say in various other points in Scripture about the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim means light. So it was the white stone. The other one is the Thummim, which is normally regarded as the known. So, if the priest, very mind he can't see them, reaches his hand in to draw out the stone, they are, as you can see, traditionally the same size. They're flat stones. And if he puts his hand in and draws out a stone and it's a white one, the answer is yes. If the stone is black, the answer is no. So it looks as if Saul has gone to this priest and say, ask God, should we continue? And he's about to put his hand in to check the yes or no answer. And Saul very quickly says, withdraw your hand. In other ways, I can't be bothered to wait. See what you get for coming to Bible studies. Right? Now, one other very, very interesting thing about this. In Reve what does the, the white stone represent? God's Revelation 2.17. It's not in your notes, so you might need to make a note of the reference. Revelation 2.17. God says, To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it known only to the one who receives it let me tell you god's promises and his rewards in heaven are a permanent yes can you hold on to that god has promised you a white stone oh dear verse 24 
There we go. He's rushed the priest. Now, verse 24 of chapter 14. Now, the men of Israel were in distress that day. No, we need to go back. Verse 20. Saul and his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Hebrews, who had previously been with the Philistines and gone up with them to the camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So basically, all those who've scattered are coming back. Now, verse 24. The men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. What? This is one of those low dips of Saul. He said, we're going to press in against these Philistines and none of you are going to eat until we, we finish the job. Let me tell you, in modern warfare, if you're about to go into battle, your commanding officer that morning makes sure that you eat breakfast. If you're in this country, a full English and then some. Because you can't be expected to fight when you're hungry. But no, no, Saul doesn't want that. The men were too tired to fight. They were very hungry. Saul did not realize, because Jonathan began his attack in secret, that Jonathan was unaware of the oath. Oh, beware of making rash oaths. Those of you who were with us in Judges last year, remember Jephthah? I'll promise you anything, and his daughter comes out. Yeah. Verse 25, the entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. Yes, not your lovely little beehive. That's raw honey out in the wild. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with an oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand, dipped it into the honeycomb, raised his hand to his mouth. His eyes brightened. Oh, gosh. But what does one of the soldiers say? Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, cursed be any man who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. Jonathan says, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of the honey. He's just got a sugar rush, isn't he? Yeah. How much better it would have been if the man had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Jonathan is making sense. Saul, I'm afraid, is not. And that's the point we need to go and have coffee. Having told you about the honey, go and get yourselves a drink. Let's crack on. Can I make a little plea at this moment that you encourage folks who may not have been here for a few weeks to come back. I hope they're all okay. I do appreciate that having um, this on podcast can be a two-edged sword that people say, I can always pick it up on podcasts. I know that is true, but I love talking to actual real people in the room. It makes it so much nicer. So if you can see somebody who wouldn't normally be able to come or hasn't for a couple of weeks, 
some of you have been very gracious and just let me know that. Sorry? Yes, yes. There are some people who I know have already said, I'm not knocking anyone who can't. The vicar is skiving. That was his daughter, Evie, who said that. So it is now out there, Evie. Oh, I so won't go there. Okay. Okay. You ready to get back into the Word? Oh, dear. Are you ready to get back into the Word? Yes. That's what I want to hear. Okay. Saul is imbalanced. Yes, I think that's possibly a cause for giggles, but I'm not sure. That image there of like a seesaw, two weighted down on one side. Um, Saul tries. You will find with people who, not necessarily who have manic depression, that's a whole other clinical situation. But some people who want to take credit for stuff they haven't done and blame other people for stuff they should be responsible for will gather so-called evidence. Yes? They try and find other people who think the same way as they do to somehow bolster up what is in fact a very, very weak argument. So the Israelites fight. Do you remember they haven't eaten, but they fight anyway. Jonathan has made this point, you know, how much better it would have been if they could have eaten. Verse 31. That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalom, they were exhausted. Yes? Not, not surprising. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Okay, those of you who know anything about Jewish culture, eating an animal with the blood is a definite no-no. So Saul commands them that this is a sin against the Lord. Oh my goodness. One law for the king, another law for the men. Verse 33, then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. Who? Oh, a nameless someone said to Saul. Oh, my dear friends, you can guarantee that if you've made a mistake, there's always going to be a someone pointing the finger. You have broken faith, said Saul. Roll a large stone over here at once. And then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox when? That night. I keep telling you, look at the little words. Same day, as they've done all the fighting, it's now night time. They brought their rocks that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. 
It was the first time he'd done this. The writer of 1 Samuel is making sure that we know it's the first time this has been done by a king. Maybe we'll see the relevance of it later. Verse 36, Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Are we still on the same night? Yes. Maybe Saul is trying to appease God for this sin of eating the meat with the blood in it. They fought all day long without real food and now they're commanded to fight all night again and plunder until dawn. This, after all, is the action and direct command of a king. What would you have said to Saul? This is a family show. Let's have nice reactions, please. What would you have said? Give us a break. We're too tired. We're not going to do this. And I think there are times in life when we put ourselves under a pressure to perform, when actually we should just say, hey, I need some sleep. I need to rest. Yes? Sometimes it's not always possible. I wrote a blog this week that sometimes I feel I'm in the middle of frantic season. And God still loves me in the frantic but when I can get an opportunity to stop, I need to stop. Okay, what were the reactions? The soldiers say to Saul, do whatever seems best to you. Oh, that's a very sneaky response, isn't it? They're basically saying, look, your decision. <laughs> if it's best to you, okay. What did that little priest say, Ahijah? Um, let us inquire of God here. That's always good. Do you want to check? Be a good idea to check? Saul says to God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? So Saul actually tries to talk to God. Verse 37. Saul asks God, Shall I go down? Will you give them into Israel's hands? But God did not answer him that day. God says nothing. Sorry? You do have to wait for God to reply. Sometimes, like I said on Sunday morning, you, you made the decision, God does hands off. Um, I've got no part of this, mate. Off you go. How do you react when God says No. Oh, I don't want... You're upset sometimes. <laughs> Did I hear right? Having had my white stone, how can God say no? Yes. I think very often God says no for a very good reason. Okay, Kirsten just said, you still get upset because you think God's not in this situation with you. Now, okay, it's very easy, and I've heard it often said, God has three answers, yes, no, or wait. 
I think it's far more complicated than that. Trust and faith is all about saying, whatever you want, God, that's fine by me, even if it's a no. Because quite often, it's about your intentions are right, but your timing is off. Yes? Or the intentions are right, but actually there are other people to be brought into this picture as God's wonderful jigsaw puzzle is put together, and you just need to stay put. We want to run like headless chickens, but God says, stay, wait, and we're just itching for the off. Use the time to rest. Evie. Instant. Yes. Spot on. Evie says, can't use God as justification for your actions in situations. You're spot on. And yet lots of Christians try that, don't they? Yeah? Or I think God said, well, okay, let's check out the principles of his word. Does it tie up? And then you may be onto something. If it's completely contradictory, run like a, you know, the proverbial. Don't do it. But sometimes God just says, child, No. That's not of me. No. That's the point when we need to act like grown-ups. But we don't. We act like kids. Don't we? I want to. It's my idea. That's the whole point. How do you react when God says nothing? Sorry? Nothing. Nothing. If God says nothing, there is also a reason. Maybe you're not ready for the answer yet. And there's some work carrying on. Now, Saul assumes that because God hasn't said anything to me, the king, that somebody else has sinned. Oh, my word. This guy. Saul, verse 41, pray to the Lord, give me the right answer. Pardon? (laughs) Give me the right answer. That's saying, keep keep talking, God, until you say yes, sort of stuff, isn't it? So Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot. So they're they're doing possibly something with the Urim and Thummim again, possibly another way. Is it him? Yes. Is it him? No. And whittling down, and God does answer, The men were cleared. Saul said, cast a lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Basically, the question that Saul is asking was, who did this thing eating? And God allows them to know it was Jonathan. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Jonathan told him, I merely, oh, is that a lovely little word? Merely, it's no big deal, Dad. I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff. And now must I die? Saul said, may God deal with me ever so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. What? But the men said, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he, that's Jonathan, did this today with God's 
help. The men are acknowledging God's role in this. So the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. And Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they were due to their own land. Whoa. The men have rescued him. But look what it says in the next verse. Saul extended his rule. Capturing neighboring kingdoms, he fought enemies on every front. Moab, Ammon, Edom, the king of Zobah, the Philistines. Whenever he turned, he came up with a victory. He became invincible. He smashed Amalek, remember that name, freeing Israel from the savagery and looting. What? It's almost as if from one verse to the next, we have a complete change. Saul has had a real problem with Jonathan and the honey and the Philistines, and all of this stuff. The next verse tells us that he's extending his military conquests. So in one position, you think, God has just given Saul up. And in the next verse, hey, he's a conquering champion again. What's that all about? Something you may need to think about. But you know, what I take from that is that God allows us to win victories after we've had failures. We've not stood up to scrutiny, but hey, God is still with us. He says, okay. (laughs) I said to Judith earlier on, Lord, I need patience. And she said, don't ask for patience. You know what that means? God will send you lots of stuff to practice on. (laughs) She's absolutely right. And it's almost as if God has said, okay, you're supposed to lead this nation. I'm going to give you more opportunities to do that. Yeah? So he did. The very end of chapter 14, I won't go too much into it, but on 49 to 52, just gives us a list of family names. And you think, well, that's a bit of a funny insert, like a cut and paste that maybe shouldn't be there. Actually, it does, because those names will come much further on down the story and we'll revisit them towards the end part of the series. However, chapter 15. And thank you for still being with me. You still here? Mm-hmm. Still awake? Mm-hmm. Good. Beginning of Saul's end. He's had a few mistakes. He's got into problems with Jonathan, but there's been a few years gap between the end of 15, 14 and 15. In fact, 14, the last verse, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. That was a direct fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy, remember? If you have a king, he's going to take the best of your men. That was it. So, Samuel turns to Saul. And this is what he says. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Oh, we did do this right at the beginning of Judges. These Amalekites were were horrendous. And they stopped the nation in their tracks for a while. 
Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul pronounces the judgment of God on this Amalekite nation. They were to destroy everything. Yeah? It's a very hard thing to say. Why? Well, the Amalekites were a band of guerrilla terrorists who lived by attacking other nations and carrying off their wealth and families. They were the first to attack the Israelites as they entered the Promised Land and continued to raid Israelites' camp at every opportunity. They were a thorn in their side. And God knew that the Israelites could never live peacefully in the Promised Land as long as that nation existed. He also knew that their corrupt, idolatrous religious practices threatened Israel's relationship with him. So the only way to protect the nation's bodies and souls was to utterly destroy the people of this warlike nation, all their possessions, including the idols. Now, this is where it gets tricky. This does not sit easily in a modern world. We live in an age of God's mercy where we are to show his love rather than his annihilation of other peoples and nations, yeah? Particularly true in a multicultural society. Now, listen carefully. It seems sometimes unilateral and unjust that we as Christians have to corporately deal with certain ideologies that seek to destroy others who do not agree with them while still maintaining that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? It's almost as if corporately we have to say that every other religion is okay, but we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's that lovely word called dogmatic If you're a Bible basher, you're trying to convert absolutely everyone. Well, the Holy Spirit actually does the conversion. We have to spread the message. But sometimes it seems, in the Old Testament at least, that God is much more likely to destroy a nation than to show mercy. Are you with me? And I talked at the beginning of the series, is there such a thing as ethical warfare? I wish I had an answer for you. I really do. I've thought long and hard about this. Many Israelis would think that there is ethical warfare. Yes. I think the whole Palestinian-Israeli question is incredibly complex, and I do not understand the half of it, I must be honest. My simplistic reaction is to pray for all of them because I don't believe that God wants war for the sake of war. But there are individuals, and I think particularly as we in the UK have to deal with more and more influences of an Islamic culture in particular, that we have to be true to what we believe. But we have to also demonstrate love and God's mercy. It's not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. The Bible clearly states 
that we are to be known as Christ's disciples by our fruit and that we should make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. However, God still wants us to utterly destroy any idol worship within us and ensure that we live lives faithful to him and his word. Yes? It's not an easy thing. But at this time in the nation's history, they were battling against nations which were known for their idolatrous practices. Not easy. Not easy at all. But Samuel has received a direct command from God, tell Saul to destroy them. Everything. Yes? Now, what happens next? Saul is charged with the utter destruction. But Saul and his army spared King Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and which they totally destroyed. Oh my goodness. Oh, there are too many principles going on here, aren't there? Um, first of all, they disobeyed the command. They kept stuff back. Then they put a spin on it and said, we only kept the best. As if somehow that was going to be okay with God. Yes? Thirdly, oh, if it's uh, despised and weak, well, we can just destroy that. It's all right. Oh. Go on to Sunday's podcast about the way that God values the poor, the hungry, the weak. Yeah? Wouldn't destroy those. But... In this case, the biggie is that they have completely disobeyed God. Why? Sometimes that's how we react to commands. There's the wrong way, and the right way, and of course, my way. Good old Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I think that could be Saul's theme song, don't you? I did it my way. I'm the king. I can do whatever I like. Selective obedience is another form of disobedience. Oh, there's something to hang on to. Selective obedience is just another form of disobedience. If God had meant to say, I want you to kill everyone except the king and the best of the animals, okay, but what had God said? Kill everything. If God says to you, I want you to deal with this particular issue in your life, and you say, well, I can deal with that bit, but it's going to take a while for this bit, Lord. If God says, sort it, he means, sort it. Do not try and think that God will let you get away with that kind of character flaw. He wants your obedience to demonstrate that you have faith that he knows what he's doing. It's not some massive ego trip. God does not have an ego to have a trip with. But when he says, I want you to do this, there will always be a reason. He does not want you to say, oh, well, maybe. Some of you know that I have two sons 
both of whom have Asperger's syndrome. That's been a journey. Love them daily, but oh my goodness, you have to get into a really interesting way of thinking. The plus side of it is, I have never experienced teenage rebellion from my sons. Hallelujah! The flip side of that is if I ask them to do anything, I have to be extremely black and white, and I have to tell them in a sequence of instructions that looks a bit like a flowchart so that they'll be able to do it again. Because once you tell them to do something, they will repeat it in exactly the same way as the first time you said it. Yes? I tell you this. Because if I've asked them to do something around the house to help me with housework, at which they are brilliant, I normally mean, I'd like you to do this now, please. But I give it to them, uh, Chris, can you just do this, 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 and this? Normally, his reaction would be, yeah, sure. This one day, um, he was in his late teens, he said, oh, I must be nearly 20s, actually. He said, um, that wasn't in my schedule for today. Once I got over the shock of realizing that I was not the only important thing in his life, I thought, what? He said, would it be okay if I did it this afternoon? I was in such shock, I just said, yes, of course. <laughs> Sometimes we try and give God that kind of answer. God tells us, I want you to do something. You say, actually, Lord, it wasn't in my schedule. I'll get round to it when I feel like it. Oh, oh. Now, of course, nobody in the room has ever felt like that. I have. And you very quickly feel as if God is going right like that over his glasses at you. <laughs> really? Let's be people who obey wives. God said, chapter 15, verse 11. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Has God made a mistake? No. Did God appoint Saul as king? Yes. So what's going on? Why is God suddenly grieved? He is sorrowful at what's happened, at the choices that Saul has made. Verse 12 of chapter 15, early in the morning. Oh, sorry, verse 10, beg your pardon. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved I have made Saul because he turned away from me. Samuel was troubled. Samuel cries out to the Lord all night. I don't know how many of you have ever tried intercession all night. Not easy. That's a soul in great distress. 
it shows that Samuel's really worried about Saul. Otherwise, he would have said, yeah, tough. Made your own bed, you lie in it. No, 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 no. He's crying out to God on behalf of his king. And early in the morning, verse 12, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. This was before Elijah, so it wasn't quite as significant as it was later. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Oh, what's that saying? Yeah, he's lost it, hasn't it? Big time. Saul is now permanently taking the credit that should have gone directly to God. But when Samuel reached him, he's found Saul. Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Selective obedience. But Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Verse 15. Saul answered, oh, here we go. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. What? Your God? What happened to my God or our God? He's now become your God. But we totally destroyed the rest as if somehow this is okay. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Oh, tell me, Saul replies. He's expecting to be given the proverbial pat on the back. So why I should be on anyone's back, I have no idea. Samuel said, sorry, you completely missed that, didn't you? <laughs> so many times said that either it's a pat on the back or I've got it off pat. It's not me, it's not me. Okay, verse 17, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy the wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. Has he lost it? Oh, yes. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he's spinning it, isn't he? We brought the best so that God could have an offering of the best. He's trying to squirm out of it, make himself look good. Samuel comes up with a damning response. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel, plea sorry, Saul pleads for forgiveness, but there is none. And as Samuel turns to leave, Saul catches the hem of Samuel's robe and it tears off. Samuel turns and says, 
God has torn the kingdom from you today. Just a quickie, there are a number of instances in Scripture where the hem of a garment has significance. The most well-known is the woman who touched the hem of the garment of Jesus and was healed. I won't go into it too much because it's a micro-sermon in its own right, but the hem of many garments was blue, blue thread. And it was regarded as authority. Yes? So in fact, the woman is not just touching the only bit she can get hold of, but she's touching the authority of Jesus. Later on when we come to talk about David, there's going to be another instance with a hem, which is really, really important. A final afterward to this tragic state in Saul's life is that Samuel returns with Saul to Gilgal. Saul audaciously asks Samuel to honor him before the elders. What? Samuel demands that the king of the Amalekites, who Saul was supposed to kill, is brought before him. Oh, pick it up. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him, how? Confidently. If a king hasn't killed him, he's all right with just a priest, surely. Thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless amongst women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. The prophet finishes the job. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul, and until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he'd made Saul king over Israel. They never meet in person again. The final points to ponder. What happens when we only obey in part? Massive, massive problems. Why was Saul still effective after he had sinned? He was still God's anointed king. That should give you hope. If you ever make a mistake and you're running yourself down for it, God still wants to use you. Still loves you, still cares for you. And why was God grieved? Because he had all the potential and he never fulfilled it. One thing. Anyone got a one thing? <gasps> oh, I pounced on it. Mary, you'll have to shout from the back. Oh, the waiting is hard, but doing it in my time is not the answer. That's a great one, isn't it? Jill. Absolutely. And the only way that you can realize it's the potential that we put in is to be closely aligned. 
Yeah, so God recognizes our potential, but he also knows the end from the beginning. I think my reaction to why didn't God make Saul a better king is that God is in the position of taking risks with every single one of us. Yeah? I could be such, such, such a better Pat Kennett. I could be a worse Pat Kennett, yes. Please, Lord, no. <laughs> But God takes risks with every single one of us and will not take away that free will that we can become as much of the person God wants us to be as possible. And as you rightly said, the thing is to keep as close to him as possible. Yeah, keep in step with the Spirit. Yeah, one more, one thing. Yes, or two more. Okay, two next to each other. Maria first. Keep a short account with God. Couldn't agree more. Very hard to do at times because we very quickly move over to the, I can do this, God. I can do this. Mm -mm -mm. Nadia. I'm trying to remember what this is just off our top. So you've got just 72 things, have you, darling? Nothing can hinder God from saving. Oh, yeah. It's an unusual verse, isn't it? And God sent them panic. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we think God is going to answer the problem in this way, you know, overwhelming numbers and, and we said I, I don't think I've ever prayed God will you send the enemy into panic <laughs> maybe it's something I ought to do <laughs> I don't know yeah no right Christine has just talked about when Paul talks about the thorn in his side and why didn't God heal him. Do you know, at the end of the day, God is God. And God has his reasons. Now Saul, uh, sorry, Saul who became Paul. No, no, no. Oh, Paul in the New Testament was originally called Saul as opposed to the one we've been learning about in the Old Testament this morning. Um, Saul tried three times to say to God, please, come on. He had the wisdom to understand that that prayer wasn't going to get answered. He didn't have to keep nagging God. And I think there's a huge difference between persevering prayer and nagging prayer. And I think Paul may have had a tendency to want to nag. And God said, nothing. So if God says nothing, God knows the problem in his time. But if not, I'm still going to trust him. Yeah. In my weakness, I'm made strong. I think it's Job. Though he, no, it's not Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Do you trust God to the point of he could kill you? Not let you be killed, but he could kill you. 
He's got that power. Are you going to say, oh, I'm not trusting in a God like that? Really? I am. My life is in his hands. That also means that my death is in his hands. And we are told that those who love the Lord love not themselves unto death. It's not about me. It's about him. Saul had not learned this lesson. Paul did. Yeah? Good point. Now, you lovely people get a two-week holiday from me. Woo! That does not mean you... Okay, Nadia is going to read the next slide. <laughs> Which is on Thursday, March the 7th. We are heading towards David at a rate of knots. And there is a huge amount to cover. I will say now, not by reason of apology, but explanation, that we can't cover everything about David. Oh, yes, what? No. So I prayed long and hard about which bits to do. We'll cover a lot of it, but I really need you to read. You've got two whole weeks to do those chapters. How much does that look at? About 15, no, 16, 17 chapters? One a day, come on, you can do that. Easy, some of you will do it by tonight, I know you. Okay, but we meet again on March the 7th. Thank you, I will see you in March. Thank you. Can we do notes?